Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. The sponsor for this whole Labor Day Book Blast week is firstbook.org. Obviously, the pandemic is crippling education for millions of students, especially those in low-income communities. The widening digital divide and extended, quote-unquote, summer slide due to COVID is devastating. Apparently, 40% lack access to reliable internet and functioning digital devices they can use for online learning, making the need for physical books and resources to prevent further educational backsliding absolutely critical. Firstbook breaks down the barriers to education for children living in low-income communities by providing its network of more than 475,000 educators serving children in need with free and affordable new high-quality books, educational resources, and basic needs items through the award-winning First Book Marketplace nonprofit e-commerce site. They need your support to ensure these children have what they need to learn during this critical time. Visit firstbook.org to help Catherine Cho is the author of Inferno, a memoir of motherhood and madness. She is an agent at Curtis Brown in the UK. Originally from the US, she's lived in New York and Hong Kong and currently lives in London with her family. Inferno is her first book. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks, Libby. I'm so glad to be here. I really cannot wait to discuss this book with you. I was like, ever since the publicist sent me the title of this book, I was like, oh, I'm going to love that. <laughs> and I really did. I couldn't put it down. It kept me up at night and it was just great. So can you just tell listeners a little bit about Inferno, a memoir of motherhood and madness and how this came to be, even be a book? Sure. Yeah, gosh. Well, So Inferno is about my experience with postpartum psychosis when my son was three months old. And the title comes from my psychosis, actually, where I thought I was Beatrice in Dante's Inferno and that my husband was Dante. I started writing the book very soon after my experience. I think when I was in the process of recovery, I'd never heard of postpartum psychosis until my experience. And so I was initially thinking of writing an article, maybe, but then... I realized that in order to know kind of the full context of a mental breakdown, perhaps, then you need to know what was there to be broken. And I thought, actually, you need like a full book to get that kind of picture. So yeah, I started writing it in the summer after my experience. And it all came together very quickly, actually. I think I very focused and I really wanted, I really wanted to share the story. So yeah. Wow. And you had a notebook that you referenced many times throughout the book where you were actually writing in it while you were in the inpatient unit, did that actually get into the book? Were some of those notes or were they more just notes? No, yeah, some of it. My husband had left me a notebook in the ward, which I was really grateful for. It really helped me kind of come, you know, figure out who I was and ground me and give me something to do while I was there. I think some of the bits that are in the book from the notebook are the the passages about who I was, you know, what was real, what was not real. That's from my notebook. And just kind of, I try to take as many notes as possible just to, 
I think it was just, it gave me something to do and like to observe. And yeah, they were, they were mostly notes. So obviously they're kind of fragmented and I had to work from them to put them into the book. You said in the beginning of the book that when you were first pregnant, because this all happened obviously postpartum, you were so focused on all the things that were happening to your body. It never occurred to you that anything could happen to your mind. Tell me a little bit about yeah. <laughs> about that and all the preparation that went into the pregnancy and, and how this threw you for a loop. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I really, yeah, I did want to talk about in the book, especially as, you know, you're so focused on such a physical change, what happens, you know, during pregnancy. And for me, I know my preoccupation was with, you know, how would I recover after birth? You know, like what could potentially go wrong, like preeclampsia or prolapse or, you know, having, you know, I had an emergency C-section, so just recovering from that. But I was so focused on the physical aspect. It really, yeah, I, I didn't consider that kind of mental or psychological shift of actually becoming a mother and how that would change you and your identity. I was glad when you said in the book when your son Kato was born that you didn't feel this like instant connection and instead it felt like <laughs> someone was handing you a stranger because I have to admit that kind of happened to me as well. I was like... <laughs> Who are these kids and why is everyone calling them by the names that I've picked out for these like fictitious kids who are in my head who don't look like these kids who are now in my arms? <laughs> and I was like, am I supposed yeah. to feel this way? So it was nice to hear <laughs> that I was not the only one who had a moment to get used to the whole thing. Definitely. <laughs> I think because like in your head, you expect like when the child is placed in your arms, you'll feel this rush of connection. And I, I think that must, I mean, I'm guessing it does happen for some women, but it definitely didn't happen for me. It wasn't so much the lack of connection as the sort of surprise at meeting a total stranger. And, you know, like, yeah. I didn't expect my babies to feel like I was meeting somebody because they felt such a part of me when they were brewing. I had twins yeah. to start and I don't know. It was more like, who were, where do these guys come from? <laughs> so I don't know. And by the way, I feel like in this book, you have had like every complication of everything, like from getting sepsis during your pregnancy <laughs> to mastitis and thrush when you were nursing. I just feel like you were like every sort of bad thing that could happen as a byproduct <laughs> you had. It was terrible. I felt terrible for you as things kept unfolding oh, no. physically. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah, it was it was unexpected. I think because I had such an uneventful pregnancy, it's like everything kind of just started happening once I was in labor and then it just kind of, you know, just kept going from there. My gosh. You also wrote just so sort of hauntingly and beautifully about your horrific abusive relationship with Drew. One of the things you said in the book that I found so interesting is at the beginning how everybody kept telling you how he was such a good guy. Like, he's such a good guy. He's such a good guy. And he's so popular. And he's so this. And you said, I wish that I had paid attention to that and heard it as a warning. Like, why were people saying that so much? Do you think people were really covering up for what they kind of knew about him? Do you think everybody knew that he was abusive in his relationships? I think they did, you know, and it's something I I thought about a lot in retrospect where, you know, after I left the relationship, I did talk to some of his friends and they would all say, oh yeah, I mean, he's not a good boyfriend, but he's like a good friend. And they would make that distinction, which, you know, I always found a bit surprising. And I think, I do think they were trying to warn me without, you know, I guess they wanted to give their friend the benefit of the doubt that actually maybe he could be a good person, but actually you know, he wasn't and he, you know, he just, he was violent and he can't, he couldn't help that. And I think, you know, it's such an interesting thing to me in that I was so puzzled at how someone could be so popular and have so many friends 
but just be such a violent kind of abusive person to his, you know, partners. And the way you talked about even his mother's response to his abuse was also interesting. I feel like nobody ever writes about that. Like that you had even the compassion after all the stuff he put you through and like being knocked unconscious essentially. And oh my gosh, I mean, I literally, I was reading this book and I was like, <gasps> my husband's like, what, what? And I was like, the girl in my book, like she's, <laughs> she's being beaten up. It's like awful. But anyway, after all that you went through to then like put yourself in his mom's shoes and say like, what would it be like to know you've raised a child like this? And what do you do in that scenario? Tell me a little more about that and sort of the empathy you're able to have for his mother. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing is often when we think about abusers or people who are violent is you tend to kind of think of them one dimensionally, but actually, you know, Drew is a son, you know, he's a brother. He has a family that really loves him and they know about, you know, his very serious flaws. But, and I thought that was really fascinating about his mother is I could tell how torn she was because it really upset her that he was this way towards women. But she also loved him unconditionally. And at the end of the day, he was always going to be her son. And she just wanted him to be happy. And that was a very strange thing, I think, for her to come to terms with. And I think, you know, as I kind of say in the book, I put so much, I kind of used her as a scapegoat often when I probably should have been blaming him. I was blaming her. And I think as I was pregnant with my own son and thinking kind of more about that and how I would deal with it if, you know, God forbid he was that type of person. It just made me consider her more and just think about, think more about how she was trying to process it. And because of course she couldn't abandon her son or turn her back on him, but I'm sure, you know, the way that she dealt with it isn't, you know, at least I hope I wouldn't deal with it like that. Yeah. Wow. So you rebound essentially from this abusive relationship and probably did not get a lot of therapy, I'm guessing, because you spent no, your you're spent your weekends going to the arrivals terminal just to see the connections other people have and that emotion and then got a job at an Alzheimer's facility. And you said something so beautiful about why, like, and maybe you didn't realize at the time, but when you reflected on it now, you said, I was drawn to their stories, but mostly I was drawn to this place where time didn't exist. It was a place of memory of loss, but each memory lasted only for the moment. So it's like so interesting that when you're trying to forget a traumatic event, you end up surrounding yourself with people with no memories at all. Tell me a little about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I do think as I was reflecting on it, and it's part of the reason why I included that, those experiences in the book is that it was such a strange place. It was, a, as you say, a home of people who, didn't have any memory, who didn't have any story, but kind of were in this place of existing. And they were desperately trying to remember things, but, you know, they couldn't. And, you know, I, I definitely didn't get any therapy after the relationship. And I kind of tried to put it behind me. And I just thought, you know, this is a chapter in my life that's closed. I didn't really talk about it with people. And, you know, at the time, I thought really it didn't affect me that much, which in retrospect was, you know, very naive. So yeah, I do think I was really drawn to this retirement home. It was specifically for people with dementia and Alzheimer's where I could really sense that they were untethered from the past. Wow. 
And then you meet the love of your life. Not, I feel like now I'm like giving away the book. Maybe this is too much, but okay. <laughs> so you and James meet, fall in love, blah, 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 have Cato. And then next thing you know, your baby has like demon eyes and the walls <laughs> are closing in and spinning around and you're seeing refractions of everything and everything just breaks in your in your brain. So I know you wrote about it so vividly and that's amazing. But to go through this experience, like just tell me a little more about that moment, especially when like you could feel your brain slipping, but you didn't know really what was going on. Yeah, it was completely terrifying. I can't lie in that, you know, I had a sense that something was wrong and I describe it in the book as the trigger is when I look at my son and his face wasn't his face, it was a, a devil's face. But it was so strange because I kept trying to write myself. It was like, I knew something was wrong. I didn't know it was wrong. I didn't know what was real. I didn't know if I was imagining something. I didn't know if I was dreaming, but I kept, you know, this all happened within, I think, a period of a couple of, a little over a day. But throughout that day, I just kept trying to reposition myself and just be like, this is fine. It's not fine. Until so much of what I was seeing and experiencing convinced me that actually you know, I was in the hell and in a simulation. And that knowledge, or that thought or belief where eventually I did lose all sense of time and kind of was reliving things again and again and again, or I thought I was stuck in this hotel room. Yeah, it was completely terrifying. And it just, at some point, you just kind of have to surrender to it because you, at least for me, I just felt like, okay, this is my reality and I'm actually dead and I'm in a simulation and there's nothing I can do. Yeah. And then you spent a bunch of time in a facility where gradually we see you sort of coming into your own mind again and writing yourself enough eventually or with the help of medication or whatever and that you could leave and sort of pick mm-hmm. up your, your life again. So here's my question. Like, I want to know what happens after the book. So like what happened when you went back? Like, did you... What's happened since? Like, what has happened with your relationship with your son? And you obviously became a beautiful memoirist. You know, what What else has gone on? And give me the, like, you know, the, <laughs> the, the epilogue, the uh, unwritten epilogue. The epilogue. Yeah, it was a really long recovery. I mean, I think part of the reason I didn't write that much about it is it's so hard to kind of write about. It was so gradual. So I came back to London. I'd gone through the psychosis. And then I had fell into a really deep depression where... I was essentially bed bound for several months and on medication. And during that time, I really couldn't interact with my son at all or touch him, which, you know, that's something I really kind of sometimes grieve over because it's just so sad that, you know, I didn't have that bond. But I would say it took a good year for me to kind of have that bond with my son again and to connect with him. I went back to work pretty soon after and classically kind of didn't tell anybody I'd gone through it. You know, what I'd gone through, I just kind of showed up and did my job. And in the meantime, I'd already been working on my book and I'd found an agent for it. Yeah, but, you know, my son is almost three now. We have a really good bond, a really good relationship. Also, I'm expecting another baby. Oh, yay! Uh-huh. Yes, thank you. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of been a whole process as well, you know, because talking with my husband about whether or not, you know, we should have another child. But I'm expecting a baby in November. And again, that kind of has made me think again about like what we went through, what I went through, and how to prevent it from happening again. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's been incredibly positive. And the whole process of publishing the book, I think, 
has really kind of showed me how much the things that I went through are actually very universal and very commonly experienced by so many women and mothers. Obviously not to that extent, but just with a fear and kind of change in your identity and self, I think is very universal. Well, not to be like totally overstepping my bounds here, but I hope you have a really good therapist on your case <laughs> this time before you I go. Do. Okay, yeah. okay, good. Phew. All right. If not, I'm going to introduce you to yeah. some people and <laughs> yeah. maybe make sure the psychosis doesn't happen. If you can even, I mean, I don't know. Are you worried about that? I would be so worried. Yeah. So, I mean, the statistics, I remember they told us that the statistics are 50% if you've experienced psychosis the first time. And when my husband heard that, he was like, yeah, we're not having another baby. But, you know, I have a very great psychiatrist who, you know, the NHS, once you've gone through this kind of thing, they assign you to a team. And it's incredible what they do. And she was kind of talking me through it. And actually, the fact that my psychosis happened so like three months in makes it more situational and more stress induced versus, you know, for many women, it happens a few days after birth. So I feel much more kind of prepared at least and aware that I could at least control some of the factors and the surroundings to prevent it from happening again. So taking it, you're not taking a big United States trip no, this time? No, not, not jumping around <laughs> the state. Although um, I felt terrible that you kept blaming yourself on that this trip was like the cause of it. I feel like you have so much sort of guilt and self sort of flagellation going on in your, in your brain about your decision and you know, it could have had nothing to do with it, really, right? Yeah I, yeah, I think the guilt is kind of inevitable. Yeah, I just, I really thought the trip would be such a great thing. And then once we were on the trip, we were like, yeah, five cities with a two-month-old is a great idea. And, you know, I still kind of feel a bit like, oh, that was just really silly. But, yeah. Well, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows what would have happened yeah. if you had stayed? You know, you just don't know. Exactly. Yeah. So now that you've sort of written this up is writing something that you want to that you like fell in love with doing that you want to keep doing or was it more like you had to get this story out well I've always written and I do work in publishing so I work with writers a lot Mm -hmm. um, in my day job you know I have really enjoyed the process of writing and uh, I've always been I've been thinking you know I would love to write something else but to be honest my mind is just blank (laughs) so I don't know what else I would write about so for the moment I just haven't been writing anything. And I do think for this, the book, it was very kind of purpose-driven. You know, it it was about kind of sharing that story. So it came much easier. So, yeah. Wow. Especially given your position in the industry and and you're as an author and like both sides of the fence, essentially. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, because I'm an agent during the day, as my day job. And that's, I think, still my very much my primary role is to help authors and writers, you know, showcase their stories. And it's, a, it's very much a privilege to do so. But I think one thing this whole process has taught me, and it's been a very humbling one, is that it's just so vulnerable to put yourself out there and to share your writing. So I definitely have a greater sense of empathy for any writer who submits, you know, something to someone. But I suppose, yeah, I don't know. I guess just to keep going. I think, you know, for me with, you know, finding an agent, obviously I knew how the process worked and that's definitely, you know, it gave me very much kind of a, a head start. But I suppose I ended up revising the book half a dozen times, maybe even more than that, even once I had my agent. And it was just about pushing it and making it as best as, best as it could be. And I think that really showed me how collaborative the writing process can be and 
the whole rewriting and editing process is just as important as the initial phase of putting it down on paper. Do you have a type of book that you gravitate towards as an agent? Yeah, so most of my books that I work with are fiction. And I think it's funny because I was thinking about this recently. I think almost all of them deal with some question of identity often. So whether the genre doesn't matter as much as it's very character-driven, voice-driven, and usually at the heart, at the center of it is a question of identity. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, maybe I'll send you my novel. No, I'm kidding. I have an agent. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, (laughs) but maybe people will listen to this and you'll be getting floods of submissions. So watch out. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you for this book, which I really could not put down and was so like immersive and just, you know, emotional and just awesome. And for telling me more about it and coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye. Thanks so much to firstbook.org for sponsoring this Labor Day book blast. Please consider giving to firstbook.org to help their network of 475,000 educators serving children in need. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Music.